Good morning, everyone. Today is Wednesday, the 29th of August, and you are listening to 3CR Community Radio Breakfast. I'm Will, and I'm here in the studio with Layla. Good morning, Layla. Good morning, Will. How are you? Oh, I'm really well. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, actually. It was, like, almost light when I entered the studio this morning at um, 6.20, and summer's coming. Yeah. It's cold, but summer's coming. Yeah, I feel it. I feel it. I I find it so beautiful that time of the morning, so still. And now that the sun is coming through, it's just bringing in, like, this whole new atmosphere. There's purples and the pinks in the Mm. sky. It's really just, like, it's so much better than getting here when it's dark and then leaving when it's bright and sunny. Like, (laughs) I'm really looking forward Mm. to those sort of twilight morning. It's not twilight, is it? It's dawn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the colourful sky. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, anyway, um... Uh, weekend? How was your weekend? Uh, yeah, it was excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I actually had a visit to the emergency room. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, and I, I know. I yeah. say that it's excellent, but it's because sure. I, I always have, I always have fun wherever I go. You know, okay. it's always, I'm okay. always a bit of a spectator. Right, right. Um, right. and I, I love, I, I, I love the, <laughs> the kind of process of like the, the emergency room. It's, it's really interesting and I just love, love. to, yeah, I do, I do. Um, right. um, I really, 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 um, admire the healthcare professionals, um, and everything that they're kind of working mm. through in this like kind of horrific bureaucratization of every of the whole process. Mm, um, mm. So it was kind of uh, it's always interesting to see like it on the front lines of seeing how our healthcare system is failing people, mm, um, mm. but also like the resilience of the individuals that are involved, regardless. Um, so Absolutely. yeah, 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 yeah. No, um, I guess that's a really really good point. Like when you first say that you went to the emergency room, of course I'm con- concerned, but mm. also just. Um, yeah, we really sort of put health away, don't we? Like, mm. health is put into that building, and you hope never to go in, and there's this fear of the building. But inside there are people who are, like, there every day, and they work there every day, and, like, I I sort of really reflexively fear that place still, even though I should, like, care about it and want to know more about mm. it. Yeah. Yeah, it was um, interesting hearing one of the nurses say that, um, that he, he was going to put through his overtimes, and oh. that, like, the standard week was, like, 75 hours. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, like, you know this. You know that the emergency healthcare professionals are overworked. Mm. But, uh, like, that, just to hear that, like, nonchalantly. Yeah. Yeah, just being like, oh, you know, I've, you know, that's our basic week. Oh, my God. So okay. they literally commit their lives to helping us. Mm. Which is so, so, so admirable. It really is. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I suppose we've got to do our work to make sure that we deserve that kind of, that kind of <laughs> support from people who, yeah. who, um, who work in the healthcare service. Um, so we've got a lot of stuff coming on the show. We've, mm. we've actually have to re- be really strict with time today because we've got so much stuff. We've got, um, a couple of stories from Decolonizing Stories, um, which I'm really excited to hear. Decolonizing Stories for folks listening at home was a, free event that happened back on the 26th so wait that was that was sunday wasn't it mm, yeah, yeah that was very, yeah very recently yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 it wasn't very lo- that long ago and um it presented stories from first nations people from um from so-called australia from palestine and from south africa as well talking about their experiences and their lives and um so we're going to be featuring um these we're going to be featuring these stories today tomorrow and on Friday as well. And we're only playing two of them today, um, from Paula Bala, who is an artist and academic. And if, um, if you're working in the arts or academia in Melbourne, you've probably 
heard of Parla already. And then at the end of the show, we're going to be hearing from Astrid Mbani as well, who is a poet and a performer and a writer and all sorts of things as well. Um, so many of these people are really hyphenated professionals. Like they've got so much going on. It's just great to hear them sort of slow down for a moment and take us into a story. So I'm excited to hear that. Um, we're also going to be hearing from um, um, Antar Victoria. Antar is an organisation, a grassroots organisation that campaigns for um, land rights and justice for Aboriginal people here in Victoria. And um, they're going to be talking about, um, we're going to be hearing from Bridget from that organisation who's talking about the election scorecard for the upcoming election. It's, um, I've got a couple of election things happening. Um, after that, Jenny Weber from the Bob Brown Foundation is going to be talking about um, the Bob Brown Foundation's despair at the, um, the appointment of Melissa Price as the new Environment Minister. And Melissa Price has a record of, well, I mean, Melissa Price used to be um, counsel for. Um, a very large mining company mm. um, and also for a very large agricultural company. So, um, yeah, we'll hear, hear exactly what's wrong with the Miller's Price when, when um, we speak to the Bob Brown Foundation. And then we're speaking to some artists, aren't we? Yeah, Madeline Flynn and Tim Humphrey are coming in um, to continue discussions about um, the Art Centre's events over uh, Refuge. Mm-hmm. 2018, so it's the third year of their five-year project, um, just trying to mobilise communities to try and, like, envision, like, disaster scenarios and, like, how we can kind of respond to it in uh, in, in ways within our kind of grassroots communities. Mm. And, and it's a free exhibition. Uh, yeah, yep. it is. Yep. I mean, there's a couple of paid events. So, mm. like, for mm. instance, Supper Club Sanatorium that's on this Friday mm-hmm. is about mm-hmm. $20 for a ticket. But other than that, yeah, most of it is entirely free. Yeah, okay. So definitely uh, stick around if you want to hear more about that. That's coming up at 8 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Uh, the time right now is 7.06, and it's time for... Alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, is a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down Okay, so on Monday, I referred to a Guardian article about the general population, um kind of coming to terms with the fact that government is innately corrupt. Um, and it was a statistic about 85% of respondents to a Griffith University and Transparency International survey believed that some or most or all of their federal members of parliament were corrupt. Uh, so, like, there's this kind of growing awareness that um, our parliamentary system is just... Um, you know, failing miserably, and it and and it comes it comes out in fruition in ways like this Peter Dutton scandal that's just come about. You heard about this, Will? I have heard about this. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So this is the third um, au pair for which is alleged that Peter Dutton personally pulled strings to have their visa status resolved here in Australia, such that they could stay and work. Um, and so the allegation is that. Um, Peter Dutton intervened in this third case, which has been revealed um, by a number of media sources, including The Guardian. I think The Herald Sun has spoken about this, and so has The Age. So it's quite all spread around that um, an au pair who worked for a relative of the... Was it the head of the AFL? Yeah, the the CEO. CEO? Yeah, Gillian McLaughlin. Yeah, sorry, was it the AFL or the NRL? AFL. AFL, sorry. Yeah, Yeah, I misremembered the the facts there. Um, So the head of the AFL... um, 
head of the AFL's family member, so not even the head of the AFL himself. Second cousin Second at that. Second cousin. Not even yeah. direct family member. Yeah, so <laughs> they, um, they wanted their, their au pair to stay in the country, mm. and so this was arranged for by the Minister for Home Affairs, mm. Peter Dutton. Yeah, personally signed. Do you remember having anyone stay in the country on your, on your directive according to, um, signed for directly by the Minister for Home Affairs? I don't remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. I never called on Peter Dutton myself to make sure that you know, one of my friends could stay in the country. Yeah. Um, it would have been nice if I could have done yeah. that. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, this is the kind of thing that I remember from, like, occasionally I'd go and live in Indonesia with my family over there. And um, during the Saharati era, like during the height of the excesses of Indonesian corruption, this is the sort of thing we'd come to expect. Like, oh, just, you know, someone pulling strings for their mate sort of thing. But, yeah, this is, like, it's really hard to cast judgment. Like, I know there are big differences between Sahara or Indonesia and current Australia, but... Uh, but yeah, but there's, no. there's really not. And we kind of mm. like have this like facade over the top that we, uh, we're living in this kind of democratic era because mm. we're all, we all have to vote compulsory. Mm. But, um, yeah, underneath it all, it, it's, abs- it's an absolute farce. Mm. Um, and at least like in ways like these kind of dictatorships, it's obvious that the level of corruption, whereas sure. this is much sneakier yes. and kind of sly. Yeah. And it's a shame that this only had to really come into the public knowledge because of the, like, I feel like it's connected to the leadership spill. I don't feel mm. like I'm being paranoid there. But yeah, it's, because it's of interesting personal, timing. Because of personal disagreements between people in power that mm. they start to find chips in, like, yep. it's kind of hearing, it, it's like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, Malcolm Turnbull's son came out and, like, kind of made comments to the age directly, um, commenting on the fact that, like, the Liberal Party has just been completely bought out by coal dinosaurs, per mm. se, and that they have, um, that they have absolutely no credibility. Um, so yeah, you're right, as, as in all of this kind of coming to the forefront, mm. but, like, we have to be able to uh, process this in a way that helps us to like develop new ways of organizing ourselves because like if you if you, you can see quite blatantly here mm. how much the system is rigged for the rich because if you can help organize an au pair to stay for like the CEO of the AFL but you know you're allowing children to languish in Nauru and Manus like that's just obvious that like there is something so inherently sick broken evil mm about our current like um political system yeah we only have four minutes left to talk about our next Ah. article which is really not enough time but i think it's worth mentioning because a lot of our listeners don't really have access to the internet um so can we can we talk about this this next article? yeah exactly will um so like yeah yeah there's so much here that like we're never going to be able to like get um, into the meat of the no, situation but no. I implore everybody to um, go on the Guardian's website because they've actually done something pretty amazing and they've examined every indigenous death in custody since 2008 mm. so they were um, they were working on a recommendation from the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and um, they, tr- they tried to design a national program to provide accurate up to date information so that the scale of the problem of indigenous deaths in custody um, um, could um, show sy- the systemic failure um, and, 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 and put it in public view um, openly to be used by researchers, lawyers, community advocates and families who have lost someone in the justice system and trying to navigate what can be a very complex and dense coronal 
process. Mm, mm. So they've put um, a lot of time, resources and energy into developing this. Um, and it, although it is uh, quite a saddening thing to kind of... To read through. Yeah. Definitely. It's a very comprehensive um, resource. And I think we should really warn people that before you go through there, um, if you are Aboriginal, for example, it contains um, images and um, information about people who have died and their names as well. And also it does have fairly, um, uh, not, not over-the-top graphic, but quite detailed um, information about the way in which people have died in prison, including, um, well, I mean, I won't, I won't include anything. I don't think it's appropriate for us to go into too much mm-hmm. detail right now, only to direct people to that, um, to that resource. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's very distressing reading, but very necessary that, um, that this information is made more and more public. And so it's great that um, The Guardian, as... Uh, as near neoliberal as they can be sometimes, um, is dedicating a lot of res- has de- dedicated a lot of resource to um, to this topic and to the, to the story, which is ongoing. And um, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and 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 as much as we're going to be listening to some decolonizing stories, this is just yes. like a reflection of colonization itself, and just kind of like the the new way that imperialism is morphing to um, control the lives of our indigenous people. Totally. Now um, we. Did say that we're going to start off with a story today. Um, centering on global first people's experiences, um, there was the um, event decolonizing stories at um, the Arts Centre Melbourne. And um, this just happened last Sunday on the 26th. And it was a really gentle event inviting folks to listen and just absorb and sit in a story. And so um, encourage you folks listening at home to do exactly the same. We're going to hear from Paola Bala who's an artist, curator, academic, cultural producer. Um, she's a Wemba Wemba and Gunta Jamara woman, and she was based um, at the Mundani Baluk Indigenous Academic Centre at Victoria University as a lecturer and PhD candidate. And she's focusing on Aboriginal women's arts and practices of resistance. She's the inaugural Lisa Bellia um, Indigenous Research Scholar. She's got so much going on. And so let's listen in. Beautiful. I acknowledge... <clears throat> and pay my respects to the Bunwarang and the Boiwarang peoples, the Kulin Nation, and recognise that this is unceded and stolen country. This is sovereign country. And in particular, I pay my gratitude for this country holding me and my family safe. And I particularly want to pay my respects to Nawe, Carolyn Briggs, the Bunwarang peoples, and Auntie Dai Kerr, the Wurundjeri peoples, for being absolutely phenomenal matriarchs and very wise women and very loving women and very generous women. And my daughter, Rosie, and I thank her for, for doing the business of listening, which is very important to us. I'm Paola Bella. I'm a Wembawembangundishmara woman. I'm a sovereign woman and I was raised to fight. I want to tell you a little bit about a piece that I have here, uh, which is on my left, and that's a piece of uh, work I made in 2014, and it's called Born Into Sovereignty, Live in Sovereignty. Um, in our language, yakawa with and withawa, which means to dream of feathers and to come home. I dreamed of a feather kite. Having been taught by my mother, grandmother, and therefore all of my women ancestors. Dreaming is to be listened to, nyona, listen, and nyonda, to hear and understand. 
search for meaning in these dreams which signify the spiritual, our decision-making, guidance and mindfulness. This work represents flight, liberation, hope, freedom and sovereignty, beauty and the strength of my black sovereign warrior women as lovers, sexual beings, mothers, aunties, grandmothers and sisters trying to fly but being tethered like cage birds, our wings clipped by violence, oppression and trauma. Yet still we fly. It is about transcendence and the freedom from suffering and yearning for joy and for healing. I want to thank the black warrior women who raised me. Our country is um, colonially known as Victoria and New South Wales. It's Wemba Wemba and Gunditjmara country. But Tuss is just country or up home, our homelands. And I was raised in our matriarchal lineage. And the stories and experiences that I was raised with as a Wemba Wemba sovereign woman was most of all in love. Uh, That love that I was raised in, you know, it wasn't the kind of love where you got told every day good job or well done or praise for doing necessary things. Praise only came when you made an effort. You did your best and you made your family proud. Four of my favourite words are good on you, babe. When love was told, it was deep and strong and you really felt it. Like river water caresses your body and calms your spirit. I felt it in the hugs and kisses, the beaming smiles in the eyes of my nan and my mum and my aunties when we'd walk into the room, noisy, wet and hungry from swimming or hot and tired after school. Those magnificent smiles when you haven't seen them for too long, when they're so happy to see you that they cry and then you cry and you melt into their softness and their gentleness. It soothes the hardness that mum and my auntie had to practice to survive their colonial injuries and their traumas. As the immediate dangers of violent white men and mean white women faded, my mother was able to let go of some of the weapons that she had to keep at hand. She was able to let her guard down and let us in a little bit closer and come into her healed space. It's that space that will always be a bit broken though because some things can't be fixed. Instead, you accept the fractures and avoid putting pressure on the wounds and you go gently with each other, ducking all the old tripwires and triggers to keep a new peace, especially for the next generation. And they adore their nan as nan. She gets respite from the struggles of parenting and gets to be loving and free without the burden of managing survival with child raising and giving love when her childhood love had to be rationed, like flour, sugar and tea, to make it last as long as possible. My growing up was mainly in Aboriginal housing in a mission brown brick veneer house in the deep south of Echuca, Victoria, Yorta Yorta country. We spent Easter's and Christmas holidays and some weekends at Munakala Mission, our Wemba Wemba country, our women's country, camping and fishing and swimming and listening, always listening, listening to aunties, great aunties, great uncles, uncles, aunties, cousins, old people, ghosts and whispers in the trees and across the soft, warm red sand to little bush birds and the one that me and my grandmother shared, as she did with her grandmother, Windork Willie Wagtail, which visits me in my Footscray courtyard, risking murder by colonial cats. She checks on me with her plump, black and white body to see if I'm okay. She soothes the pain of being away from home and relatives where I've created a life in the city with my other chosen black family. 
I still miss home and being around my relatives every day and I crave time with them. Regular visits to mum and my brothers and my cousins and the Facebook yarns and the inbox messages keep me in the mish in one way or another. There's a lot of love there on Facecrack and InstaMob. <laughs> a virtual mission where we row, we assert, we gossip, we laugh, we tease, we cry and we share when we're down and we celebrate all of our wins and our survivals. Leaving the bush and coming to the city as a young Aboriginal single mother took so much hard work, but the unconditional love and heroism of a number of fierce Aboriginal women to protect and nurture me and my daughter ensured that I survived and thrived to get me and my kids to this point. And I want to name these women. They were Karen Jackson, Liz Von Rule, Annette Sachs, Raylene Clinch and Tracy Bundar. It hurts because we've lost two of them, and they were far too young to go. But their unconditional love as other mothers, sisters, aunties, titters, all at once. Kalinda Yayans, in my language, is to love my sisters and to be loved by them is everything. Kim Kruger and Pauline Wyman are also my titters and I'm so grateful for the support and love. A black woman's love is iron strong and her loyalty is life affirming. Her body comes in all shades, her hair may kink and curl or it might even be drop dead straight black, brown, blonde or red, she might colour it herself, she might get it done somewhere or maybe a sister does it for her while they talk. Her ground might be concrete, it might be hot sandy river crystals that shimmer and shine in summer days. It might be sticky black gobbed concrete where she bots for ciggies with as much pride as she can muster on Smith Street or Swanston Street where she struts in her heels to an office somewhere. They're both working for their people. It's nine to five, as Arnie Dolly Parton knows. It's, you know, what a way to make a living. I'm humbled and inspired by the strength and courage and love of Aboriginal women in Australia. I'm in awe of um, young women like Tani and Onis, who on Invasion Day said, F*** Australia, I hope it burns to the ground. I was standing about three metres away from her with my family when she said that. And um, as we've done many times at many other rallies by the um, warriors of the Aboriginal resistance war, and that they were not words of hate or disrespect or some invented white fantasy reverse racism that doesn't exist. It was an act of love. It's what Dr Cornell West speaks of when he says that never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. We march on Invasion Day against the forced closures of our communities because we are motivated by the love of our families, our culture and our Mother Earth. We are justifiably angry because our families, communities, culture and Mother Earth have consistently been under attack and white colonial occupation for over 240 years now. It's justifiable anger when you or your loved one's well-being is at threat. Tanin and Lydia Thorpe, the newly elected Greens member, first Aboriginal woman in Victorian Parliament, were both in the last well, eight months being threatened with sexual violence, rape, murder and body shamed for their views, for their words, for their resistance. Their histories interrogated and their authenticity of the Aboriginality questioned. Mariki, owners of war, whereas the Aboriginal resistors, pointed out once on um, Instagram that while Tanin's brother, Tell, was being lauded as a nice guy and married at first sight, I know people in here have watched it, so <laughs> go quiet like you haven't watched it because I've watched it. Um, 
well, his sister was depicted as black, angry and out of control, um, that women, black women in particular, should keep their mouths shut for metaphorically speaking about burning down the Australia that's a metaphor in itself. It rants about protecting free speech, but only when it applies to whites or racists. Remember that George Brandis said that people have the right to be bigs in this country. In the last week, is can't even talk about it. Um, the icons and cliches about meat pies and football and Anzacs, only the white ones, not the black ones. Mateship, fair go, this lucky country. Lucky. <clears throat> All these empty constructs that serve white men and people who assimilate. The reality is that the Australia Tunnin spoke of needs burning down. It's the Australia that invaded, committed genocide, takes our children away, jails us, and breaks our hearts and absolutely tires us out. It's the same one that jails Aboriginal women and men at an escalating rate and our children, takes our children at a higher rate than during the stolen generations. That represents hate and racism and homophobia and transphobia and Islamophobia and ugliness. I say let it burn and let it grow back harvested and nurtured by black women collectives, by collectives of migrants and asylum seekers and people of colour in solidarity working together to rebuild the gardens and estates of love and safety with our sisters and our brothers, where Mother Earth can replenish and heal and she can learn to trust and believe that we actually care for her. That future is matriarchal and it will be much safer if we maintain that and work towards it. In that matriarchy, I am very grateful that I was raised by an angry black mother and an angry black grandmother and angry black aunties and big cousins because they taught me love and justice. They taught me to stand up and to fight and speak back and to speak black. Professor Tracy Bunder names us as sovereign warrior women and she says that we become empowered when we challenge these colonised creations of the object black woman. When we speak of ourselves, our emotions and our histories, it's the very essence of our social, political and spiritual beings. She's written us, talked us, nurtured us and encouraged us. With listening and art, she started the process to bring me out of my trauma from transgenerational traumas in this country, too common to Aboriginal women. Thinking I wouldn't be able to ever make art again, I was paralysed with fear and I was absolutely buckled and bent with anxiety. I knew that my mother was very, very angry when I was young, but I never really understood why. And I could see that if she just kept really super busy and moving and learning and working, that she might outrun all of that pain. She did every possible course, every job, every work for the doll course that Aboriginal people were forced to do before anybody else was. And she practised self-care before I actually knew what it was. She played every sport. She got dressed up for every occasion. She never apologised for that. And she doesn't apologise for going to the toilet. You ever heard a woman say, sorry, I just have to go to the toilet? Why are we saying sorry for peeing and shitting? <laughs> but it's, you know, ingrained into you to apologise for yourself. But I started to understand that anger and understand, you know, that love and abuse can live in the same house as Bell Hook showed me in All About Love. I was loved by my grandmother and my aunties and these unshakable bonds, but also knew that the traumas um, 
was so deep and affected the ability to be able to often express pride and love and to demonstrate that. Came to understand that love and shame can be entwined in generational wounds and colonial embedded internalised hate that you pick up in your feet and you've got no shoes on like shards of broken glass. Loving yourself and speaking out as a black woman disrupts the idea that we are servants to others, to masters, to men, to everyone except ourselves. When I was a teenager, mum told me that people learn how to treat you by the way you treat yourself. Every few years past 40, it makes more and more sense to me and it humbles me that my mother was naming self-care before I knew what it was. I watched her fight many, many times against her own when she had to and she was never afraid to tell white women to go get f***ed right to their face if she felt they were disrespecting her or any of us. Matriarchy teaches us so many love lessons, how to function in the white-centric spaces that we work and live in, how to navigate obstacles and jump hurdles, how to stay loving for others, and importantly, how to love ourselves and learn self-care when we've been taught to serve and please others. Aboriginal women artists, writers, activists, community women demonstrate so much love and commitment and courage when they manifest and write their stories, do their work, and give love for people to thrive in. It's a place of practice resistance and disruption to everything we're told not to be. Beautiful, articulate, worthy and intelligent. We say hard things that are hard to hear and make people uncomfortable. We trust, we love, we bear witness, we absorb blows and hurts and wounds for others, for our kids, for other people's kids, for our men and our families. So what does love have to do with it? Everything. I give deep thanks and gratitude to be raised in the love and legacy of fighting and loving women, my grandmother Rosie and my auntie Walter Blow, a great Yorta Yorta and Wemba woman who fought for the rights of young Aboriginal girls and women and who described herself as a mother emu who would do anything to protect her babies. I thank her and all of our warrior women. And that was Paola Bala speaking at Decolonising Stories this past Sunday. Um, and decolonizing stories, as um, I said at the top of the segment, it was an event, uh, a free event, um, and so that's why we're able to share all of the uh, share all of these stories with you, held at the um, Arts Centre Melbourne. Um, the event was curated by speaker, writer, theatre maker Candy Bowers, who's an ambassador for a South uh, South African theatre production called The Fall, which is happening right now and is on until the 2nd of September. And um, this event featured some video work by Roberta Rich, who is a multidisciplinary artist whose work responds to the constructions of identity, often referencing her diaspora and African identity and experiences. And so um, we'll endeavour to find a way to share that with you, although radio is not a visual medium, as you folks may already know. Uh, the time right now is 7.31. Oh, forgot to mention, uh, so Paola Bella's daughter, Rosie Kalina, has an event happening on the 15th of September at Signal, um, which is on the north shore of the Birurung, or the, the Arrow River. Um, and um, she's Rosie Kalina is holding a workshop for Indigenous youth um, doing uh, makeup, um, sort of sharing makeup skills. And so if you know anyone who is aged between, I think the ages that they were between 13 and 25 and is of um, um, Aboriginal background, then definitely let them know that there's going to be a makeup, makeup workshop for them run by a really talented First Nations makeup artist. Uh, you are listening to 3CR Community Radio and we'll be right back. I've put you in a mirror 
Hi, I'm Elise Platt and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your radio dial. CR is in the running to receive nearly $100,000 to help us retrofit our station for greater accessibility. That means better handrails, doors, taps, ramps. And more to provide improved access for everyone. But we need your support. Do you live within 5 kilometres of the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy? If you do, you're eligible to vote for us. Our project is part of the Victorian State Government Speak My Project Scheme. And you can jump online and vote for 3CR's Community Radio Accessibility Project by going to 3cr.org.au. It's only with your vote that we can receive this important funding to make our station more accessible. Estás sintonizando 3CR 855 de tu dial AM. Sedoy Moro az Radio 3CR 855 AM Mishanavit. Kính thưa quý vị, đây là đài phát thanh 3CR trên làn sóng AM 855. Tracer broadcasts over 130 programs in 25 languages supporting communities and viewpoints that you just don't hear about anywhere else. Subscribe to your award-winning multilingual community radio station, 3CR, and help keep these voices on the airwaves. Call the station on 94198377. The number is again 94198377. And you are listening to 3CR Community Radio Breakfast. Uh, now, just a quick update with the weather, folks. Right now, it is a whole one degree outside, which is uh, quite chilly. Um, we're going to be seeing a sunny day, though. Sunny day, um, top of 15. So we're starting off with a little bit of fog in the morning, although when I was out, it was nice and clear. And we're getting up to a top of 15. It'll get down to 5 degrees tonight. And tomorrow, we're expecting rain. So if you've got any washing to do, do it today. Um, although it's 7.30 and you may be getting ready to go go to work. But if you're coming home from the night shift, do some washing and hanging out today because it's going to be sunny. Um, and, uh, yeah, definitely enjoy this next, uh, next little segment. So in anticipation of the state election coming on the 24th of November later this year, um, Anti-Victoria has come up with an election scorecard. Um, Anti-Victorian is an, a grassroots organisation campaigning for uh, native title rights and reconciliation with um, and for Indigenous people in Australia. And so they've come out with a scorecard going through uh, basically what we should be looking for from the major parties in terms of their policies around six different areas, treaty, education, justice, health, land and waterways, and out-of-home care. And to tell us a bit more about this, we have Bridget Knight Braniff, co-chair of Anti-Victoria in the studio. How are you going, Bridget? I'm good, thanks, Will. How are oh, you? Thank you for coming in. Very well, thank you. Um, uh, I just want to say, of course. we um, support land rights more than just native title mm. nowadays and mm. also other Aboriginal issues 
but we started out um, campaigning for native title and reconciliation mm, specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Um, so that that's a, re- a really good point, and thank mm-hmm. you for bringing that up. Um, so let's let's get into the the election scorecard. You've isolated um, six particular sort of policy areas that you're hoping to see um, see good things out of um, the state government and out of the state election. Um, how were what was the process behind the scorecard? Who was involved in, in picking those six different topics? Um, so it was myself and a group of volunteers, mainly. Um, and we thought that those six issues are important for Aboriginal Victorians or they're important to be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And so uh, we, you've, the first one on the list is treaty. And um, uh, I was just looking at the scorecard and we see a lot of... Um, interesting things coming out of the um, Victorian Labor Party and out of the Victorian Greens as well. Um, And this is quite consistent across all of the different policy areas. But with the Liberal Party, they make the point that they want to leave the treaty process to federal government. And um, just it would be interesting to think about. Um, Can treaties be effective if they're not endorsed by the Commonwealth? Uh, yes, definitely. Yeah. Uh, we see a, we're seeing a successful treaty process now. Um, and the reason it's taking so long is because there's so many Aboriginal Victorians to take into account, um, and so many clans and groups. Um, so to do this on a national scale would be even more difficult. Um, and we support the federal treaty, but that doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. Mm. So the argument by Anti-Victoria is that smaller treaties with the different Aboriginal groups here in in what we call Victoria is mm-hmm. is more achievable. Uh, yes, and more um, accommodating, maybe, mm. or will be a quicker, more thorough process. And the treaty may not necessarily... Um, no one knows what it will look like exactly yet, so it might not be multiple treaties with different groups or, um, yeah, the, the format isn't um, certain yet. Yeah. But, yeah. But well, I mean, talking about smaller um, political groups, we're talking about the, the state election as opposed to federal election, which will right. come whenever. Who knows, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, so what, what does anti-Victoria think can be achieved in the, the state election that couldn't be achieved in the federal election? Why... Like, obviously, you've come up with a scorecard because it's timely. The, the state election's coming. But um, can, can the big changes that need to happen in the lives of Aboriginal Victorians happen in state government, or do we need to wait for federal government? Um, I think both are important players. Uh, there's a lot of initiatives that are particularly Victorian-run. Um, like, there's, for example, the Morung, um Education Plan and the Koori Kids Shine Plan. Uh, and there's a lot of... Um, registered Aboriginal parties um, around Victoria and that's a process that is unique to Victoria so in other states they don't um, have the system where they can create a registered Aboriginal party Um, and the uh, state government is also important to supporting um, grants and uh, land management schemes of um, different traditional owners around Victoria. Yeah, Yeah. okay. Um, And and in terms of, like for all these issues, for example, justice, the the state government can influence the justice system and positive initiatives um, a a lot in Victoria, as can the federal government. Yeah, so absolutely. We don't have to wait for, not just for treaty um, 
treaty sort of arrangements, but also for other areas of policy that are important for Aboriginal people. We don't have to wait for the federal government to hatch up, and it doesn't sound no. like they'll be doing that anytime soon. Exactly. Um, hearing the, the important position that Tony Abbott's been given um, yes. <laughs> in the lives of Indigenous people, which is a, a very interesting, if yeah, not very really terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> terrible. Okay. A bit of a joke. Yes. Um, now, it seems on, the, on that, really, um, it seems pretty consistently that um, the Liberal National Coalition does very poorly Mm-hmm. in this scorecard, um, but you've you've included them because they are a major party and yes. um, we do need to know what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, in contrast, Victorian Labor and the Victorian Greens seem to do fairly well on mm-hmm. the scorecard. They all seem to receive um, green thumbs up, which is how the scorecard marks um, different parties. How would we be able to contrast their performance against each other? Um, it It is kind of a scoring that's um, given overall, mm. but uh, some of their policies differ slightly. Um, the it basically comes down to what's in the text. Um, yeah, yeah. For example, the Greens, um, led by Lydia Thorpe, are trying to make Parliament more um, m- more culturally safe for mm. Aboriginal Victorians, um, and the Labor Party has um, started a lot of initiatives in the last few years and started the treaty process. Mm. Um, yeah. And the Greens Party on the treaty, they made some amendments to the treaty. Um, they all went through by one, which was to um, emphasise that traditional owners maintain sovereignty. Mm. So that's a slight difference there. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And um, if you just read through the scorecard, essentially, you'll be able to sort of pair up different policies between the, the Greens and the Labor Party and see who sort of does better from, from the reader's perspective. Yeah, um, exactly. Sure. We have tried to simple it down as much as possible and yeah. make it as clear as possible, yeah. but um, yeah, there's a lot of little details. Yeah. And, well, that was yeah. my next question. How do we use the scorecard? It seems um, like you've got that sort of there's a, there's a red thumb down for, mm-hmm. for policies that are damaging towards um, Indigenous or Aboriginal Victorians, and then there's like a thumbs, green thumbs up or a yellow sideway thumbs, yeah. which I think is quite funny. Um, but yeah, so 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 you you want people to read this and and then. Um, so part of the reason we made this is so that people can learn more about the obstacles for Aboriginal Victorians and how um, they're kind of structural barriers for them in these areas. Um, But we also did it to encourage people to petition and write to local councillors, sorry, candidates, and find out who local candidates are and what their opinions are on this or their stances are on these issues and really put pressure on the um, parties to do better. Okay. Well, it sounds like a really useful resource. Like, Mm -hmm. it was definitely very easily easy reading for me to sort of quickly sort of understand certain um, certain areas and right. encourage me to learn and read more. Um, but where can where can we get our hands on the scorecard? Uh, so there's a copy on our website mm-hmm. if you go to antarvictoria.org.au. Mm-hmm. Um, we do also have hard copies mm-hmm. around. Um, you can pick them up from our office in Fitzroy, I guess, or, um, yeah, contact us at the office and we'll see what we can do to get some hard copies out. But sure. there is a copy online. Wonderful. Now, the website, again, is antivictoria.org.au. 
anti-org.au. So anti, A-N-T-A-R, Victoria. Um, otherwise, if folks don't have the internet and they, they do want to head over to your office to pick up a hard coffee, copy, what's the address? So the building address is 128 Fitzroy Street. Sure. But you can find us at the back of Brotherhood of St. Lawrence, which is 67 Brunswick Street, and may be easier to find. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've been speaking to co-chair of Anti-Victoria, Bridget Knight-Braniff, who's been telling us about the uh, state election scorecard. Um, and uh, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me, Will. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. One of my favourite artists, um, kind of speaking of the the lost disconnection um, and kind of desolate mortality of like um, post colonialism and imperialism, is Kate Tempest, um, and she's I've got a track here for from her called Europe Is Lost, and it's the second character monologue of her um, seven that make up the album story of Let Them Eat Chaos. Um, so yeah, please enjoy. <laughs> You're listening to 3CR. Europe is lost. America lost. London lost. Still we are clamouring victory. All that is meaningless rules. We have learnt nothing from history. The people are dead in their lifetimes, dazed in the shine of the streets. But look how the traffic's still moving. Systems too slick to stop working. Business is good and there's bands every night. And you are listening to 3CR Community Radio Breakfast. Uh, we're just about to speak to uh, the folks from the Bob Brown Foundation. Jenny Weber is the campaign manager for the Bob Brown Foundation who recently came out with a statement on the brand new Environment Minister uh, MP Melissa Price. Uh, Jenny, are you there? Yes, Hi. Hello. Um, so the Bob Brown Foundation statement on our new Environment Minister, um, Melissa Price, was pretty scathing in terms of calling um, Melissa Price uh, someone who's going to be useless and powerless um, when it comes to the environment. Can you, um, first of all, give us an idea of what we're coming out of? Greg Hunt um, was the old Environment Minister, um, and Jenny Weber was Assistant Environment Minister. Um Will will we see an improvement or a, a sort of a, a deterioration of um, focus on environmental issues from the federal government? So we're coming off the back of Josh Frydenberg. Josh Frydenberg, who, I'm sorry. Um, it was your local, actually. He was just nearby 3CR in, in, in Kuyong. Mm. And, I mean, the scandal just towards the end of Josh Frydenberg as the environment minister was him handing $444 million over to a organisation that, that isn't actually going to do anything for the Great Barrier Reef, mm. um, but that $440 million is taxpayers' money that's going to a foundation that uh, then took uh, industry and companies that are destroying the reef out 
for a jaunt. I mean, what we're looking at here is um, a new environment minister who worked as a lawyer for the mining industry. Um, she has a record of voting for unconventional gas mining. She's got a record for voting against increasing Aboriginal land rights. Uh, she disses the carbon tax. She completely rejects a mining tax. Um, she's a cheerleader for the mining industry and it's only going to be um, worrying what's going to happen next. So I guess the, the same thing's happening for people who are working in the uh, energy um, community right now and they're saying that the energy minister is someone who is anti-wind um, and, you know, these people are climate change sceptics. I mean, we have Melissa Price on record in her um, debates in Parliament that calling climate change so-called mm. climate change. So we're in trouble. Yeah, it's, it's right there on her website. You look back at a, um, a, a question that she asked back in 2015. Um, but th- that being said, we're not coming off um, great climate defenders. You talk about Josh Ruddenberg and his record. Um, so, so is there... Anything in particular that makes you worried about Melissa Price in that she she hasn't really ever voted in a sort of a rebel sort of way. She's very much an establishment figure in the Liberal Party. She was picked by ScoMo to, for this role. Um, so so her policy, what I'm trying to get at, is is Liberal Party policy. Um, we're not seeing anything particularly unusual in, in her. Is that right? Well, the thing is, is that you, what we're seeing in the change of government, um, you know, the change of leader is a move to the hard right. Mm. So we're, we're already seeing a change in the um, government that you couldn't think it could get any worse. I mean, I know we dodged a bullet by not getting Peter Dutton, but we did go from um, someone who was at least appearing to try to take on yeah. climate change. I know that Malcolm Turnbull didn't do what he needed to do for climate change and, and there was some great disappointments. Um, it is telling, though, having his son come out in the media in the last couple of days and, and just really name up that it's the coal industry that is running the, the Australian government. And so I think what we just are um, alert to is that it didn't get any better and this is the highest job in the nation for the environment. You know, they could have put someone in there, um, but you're right, are we just dreaming? I mean, when we have such a, a hard-right uh, government, when we've got people in the Liberal Party who are climate change sceptics and it's been like that for years, um, then it just goes back to having people on the ground in the community voting them out, and that's what our option is. Mm, absolutely. Now, uh, I'm... Not sure there's much else to be said about um, Melissa Price, except for we can expect more of the same, but slightly worse, um, which sounds like, which is a terrible way of putting it, but that's that's how I understand it in terms of um, um, the federal government's environment policy. Um, now, we didn't talk about this before the interview, but I was wondering if you could tell, give us a little bit of an update on the, the Tarkine campaign that the Bob Brown Foundation is involved in. Sure, yeah, we are, we've been running a great campaign. The last 12 months has been the most active uh, that our campaign has been with uh, protests in the forest where there's logging, rainforest logging in the Tarkine, which is an outrage in you know this day and age. Um, again, you know we have legacy issues of the government, federal government, that is failing to do uh, anything good by the environment in the Tarkine, from the Astacopsis gouldi, which is the world's largest freshwater crayfish, that is threatened, and um, the federal government could be looking after that crayfish, and they're not. 
to the coast, which has this extraordinary Aboriginal heritage and uh, there's four-wheel drives that are driving over this her- these heritage sites. So the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre took the government, state government to court to ask them to not reopen tracks to four-wheel drives along that remote, stunning coastline, and uh, they won. And then the state government appealed the decision and the federal government intervened to appeal as well and join the case. So we are in the Tarkine of experiencing what it's like to have a uh, redneck um, federal government that doesn't care about the environment. What we are embarking on um, in the next couple of months is more action in the forest. Um, and uh, one of the things that we're working towards is a big canopy camp out on the 15th of September where we're joining an international camp out where people are uh, getting into the canopy and, and camping out for the weekend to bring attention to uh, the logging and of forest and, and the vanishing tracks of forest, which um, I know Victorians are very aware of with their experience with their beautiful forest disappearing as well. Mm, and the ongoing Great Forest National, um, sorry, Great Great Forest National Park campaign. Um. Hi there. Um, I just wanted to um, ask a question about that um, canopy camp out. Where is it? Uh, so we're having a canopy camp out in the Tarkine. Tarkine. Uh, we, yep, we haven't um, revealed where it is yet because mm-hmm. we don't. We know that the logging industry is keeping watch on us and, um, you know, wants to gazump us. And so we are um, having it on the 15th of September, so Saturday night. It's, people are welcome to travel down and join us and, and we'll be in touch with them. They can just contact me at the foundation and we can be in touch with them and let them know the rendezvous point and then... Yeah, we'll get into the canopy. At this stage, we have sort of 20 people keen to climb into the canopy and sleep in it for the night. Um, it's a great international venture. Check it out online, the big canopy camp out, and people um, do camp outs across the world in different threatened forests. Excellent. There's um, there's actually a um, planned action at the uh, Adani coal mine on the between the 11th and 15th, and I'm not sure if there's any kind of crossover that could happen between your organisation and the frontline action on coal. Well, we do actually keep in touch, close touch with Frontline Action and Coal. What legends, they pull off incredible work and such an important issue. I mean, this is a classic, the Stop Adani um, campaign is a classic example of why it's a problem to have someone who's a cheerleader for the mining industry as a federal environment minister. I mean, a federal environment minister should be defending, um, you know, the, the planet and defending the environment and... It's, it's a big worry about what it means for the Sopadani, um campaigners, but they seem like they're just as strong as ever. And, yeah, of course, there's always something that we can do to um, help them and work in solidarity with them. Now, if you want to keep an eye out for that um, canopy camp out that's happening in September, I'm sure you can probably find out more about it if you follow at Bob Brown FNDN. That's the Bob Brown Foundation on Twitter. Um, otherwise, sorry, what was the website? Uh, so there's the Big Canopy Camp Out. If you mm. just search Big Canopy Camp Out, you'll be able to um, find a bunch of information. And then you're right. If you look at um, our website or our Facebook and Twitter, you'll be able to find out more about what we're doing with the Big Canopy Camp Out. Beautiful. I've been speaking to Jenny Weber, who is campaign manager for the Bob Brown Foundation. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Thanks for having me. Have a lovely day in Melbourne. <laughs> thank you. You too. Bye-bye. And you are listening to 3CR Community Radio Breakfast. Hi, this is Rafi Ziada, and you're listening to 3CR Pro-Palestinian Happily Proud Radio. International Overdose Awareness Day is held annually on the 31st of August. 
It is a day to raise awareness of overdose, reduce the stigma of drug-related death and acknowledge the grief felt by family and friends of those who have died. With the ongoing stigmatisation and criminalisation of people who consume drugs in Australia, International Overdose Awareness Day is as important as ever. This year, 3CR will be broadcasting a special half-hour program at 10am on Friday the 31st of August. Join us for a panel discussion looking at current efforts to reduce the tragic loss of life from overdose in Australia. Experts will offer perspectives from the fields of research, service delivery and most importantly, peers in the community. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. And you are listening to 3CR Community Radio here um, when, on Wednesday Breakfast. Hang on, no, 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 no. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio. And we're going to go back into those stories from Decolonizing Stories. Astrid Mbani is a writer, poet, spoken word artist, performer, lover of people, authentic relationship builder, edifier, equipper, and lifelong student who's excited to see what other roles God develops in her. Born in South Africa, her mother says she came in with a bang and she wants to exit with one having made her ancestors and her future generations proud. She is the culmination of all that's gone before and the hope of those yet to come. And uh, let's listen in. Good afternoon, beautiful audience. Um, my name is Astrid. Um, I have with me here, accompanying me, my great-grandmother, Mama Violet, my... Grandmother, she was Mammy Iris, my mother, Jeanette, and I think two or three year old me. And this is one of the wonderful things about telling stories, just as you are accompanying me um, this afternoon as I tell you about myself and my history. So I am accompanied. So this is a narrative for me and my future generation and all who I might share and connect with. For all that has gone before has brought me to now, in this room, in this moment, here with you, creating a new moment. I come from the joining of Africa's thighs, the most southernmost tip, where two oceans have this beautiful symbiotic relationship and their oneness as perfect as extra hot chai latte mixed with a symphony of cardamom and cinnamon and clove. Like on a cold winter's night in front of a fireplace wrapped in your lover's arms. 
Do you see that? Can you feel that? Can you smell that? Now amp that up by 10. And that is an idea of the beauty of Cape Town. However, like any majestic woman, beauty isn't all that will forever have her etched on my neurons like a deep yearning for a drug or pleasure that you know will drop you like a ton of bricks in times of despair when you're coming down from your high. I was born the eldest child of four children to a father who, because of apartheid, only went to grade five. And because of that, always pushed us for better, though we might not have seen it at the time. See, we, the four of us, were tired of being shamed because we spoke differently, pronounced things differently, and according to our neighbors, wanted to keep us sturdy or posh or talk like whiteys. And my dad, because of his presence, my dad was a charmer if he wanted to be. And uh, his carriage and his character strict, you know, no nonsense. And he knew the law. And they called dad the mayor of Pickerel Street. <laughs> These characteristics later led him to activism. I was so embarrassed as a child. As an adult, I couldn't be more proud. My masculine energy which serves me when I need strength Rational and drive comes from him, as well as my love of language and my poetry and writing combined with that and stealing of mum's moles and boons, for those of you who know moles and boons. <laughs> ah, the beauty of recalibrating childhood memories. Thanks, Daddy. My mum was a stay-at-home mum and most of our primary school life and responsible for her children's firm sense of self. Bless her heart. She had be us believing with her attitude and words that we were the next best thing since sliced bread. To world-proof your child, tell them who they are and what you see in them when they're little, and the seed grows into a self-confident adult who's ready to forge into the world, and in my case, across the world. Donkey, my ma. Thanks, Mum. To be honest, when I was in South Africa, I didn't experience much racism, not overtly. But I remember many things that I now think, what BS. Example, my aunt, like whom I looked, except for she had much more abundant girls. Uh, and I was envious till most of my life until I went nursing, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> Well, my beautiful Aunt Marianne, she worked in service to a lady she called Madam. I now feel bile rise as I think of this subservient, blat blatant white supremacy and dumb f <laughs> What Madam? My aunt was a Madam. Auntie Marianne. <laughs> she didn't walk, she strutted. Even in her work of roles, 
her hips would wiggle, and she had these beautiful, thick, round calves, brown hair, and thick eyebrows. I didn't have the words then, but as I listened to this description, I realized I wanted to be like Auntie Marianne, because she was sexy. Hence, I was very proud when a boy in high school teased me, saying, what kind of a walk is that? There's no runway here. You don't need to strut. (laughs) Israel thought he was teasing me. He didn't know he was paying me a huge compliment. (laughs) Auntie Marianne lived in a servant's court that was at the back of the main house. Madam's house was immaculate while my aunt was separated from her family. Her children staying with mother and sisters in Beaufort West, which would be maybe Aubrey um, in distance from us. Madam's children were greeted home by my aunt while hers had surrogate mothers. The legacy of family being separated by slave owners to get more productivity from them with the hope and promise of being reunited. Just like migrant labor or migration only serves a family unit if the separation is for a small time, money can never replace the harm of not seeing reflections of yourself in those around you, having a nose like you, feet like you, a smile like you. There's an assimilation of self that happens when this is present that is priceless. Otherwise, we go looking for others to affirm us, which can be sabotage for the soul. The uninformed opinion I've often gotten here, you must be so glad you're in Australia. It's better here. Better for who and for what? Better for my next generation, yes, but some days, not for me. In South African, I'm called colored, an identity I have an ambivalent relationship with since this classification was created by the colonial usurper, corralling our people to, con- to certain areas so that they would take the prime land. Sound familiar? I embraced my identity as a black woman, letting my hair grow natural, Huge. When it's been relaxed from the age of 13, can you imagine three decades of putting carcinogenic chemicals into my body to try and align with other people's opinion of beauty? In my culture, my hair would be called Cruz by those who still try to emulate the Caucasian version of beauty. <laughs> Here, I've had to answer the most ridiculous questions. Where I come from? Why I sound different? Why it's not okay to say your assets and things like, is your hair like hair or is it like wool? Are you, um, uh, you want us black? Is that what you want to know? <laughs> yes, I'm black. Oh, but you don't look black. Mm, Nah, I don't do that anymore. I don't answer those questions. And don't invest, if you don't invest in me and get to know me 
and find out that I'm a conglomeration of roles and parts and bits and ever-evolving and ever-growing. And I'm not taking the energy to make others feel comfortable with the box that they've put me in that fits into their limited exposure. There's a certain kind of fatigue that can land in the spirit over time with this explaining and scrutinizing and exotifying. Ish. It makes one tired. But then I withdraw from those who cannot bring to the table of relationship and only come to window shop or see if free samples are being handed out. Since my arrival in 2007 and having been removed from that which is familiar, I've dug deeper and reclaimed a lot of myself, really. Realized that my great-grandmother, my grandmother, and mother walked with me strongly, in ta- especially in trying times. I come from kick-ass women. And I have never loved my hair and my body and my personality more than I do at this stage of my life. So if you see a sassy black woman crossing the street, strutting her stuff, being loud and boisterous with her laughter, and telling someone about their rights, that will probably be me. (laughs) Astrid, Fingo, Karsten, Zambani. And I thank you for being part of my growth and my ongoing narrative, beautiful audience. And you are listening to 3CR Community Radio. That was Astrid Mbani, poet, performer, uh, sharing her story at Decolonizing Solidarity, which was an event that happened last Sunday. Now, we're sharing um, segments of all of the stories that were shared at Decolonizing Stories. You'll hear them tomorrow on Thursday Breakfast and then also on Friday on um, Green Left Weekly's Friday Breakfast. Um, and right now we've got an interview, don't we, Layla? Yeah, so um, the Melbourne Arts Centre has been organising in conjunction with like the University of Melbourne, the Doherty Institute of um, Immunity and Infection, really interesting like array of events for their third um, um, manifestation of refuge. And uh, it, it's it's exploring the health impacts of climate change, epi- epidemics, grief, stigma, and anxieties evoked through the language of disease. So they're, spe- um, they're specifically exploring the theme of pandemics and the way that it challenges communities to understand corporality, fears and taboos, and highlight the necessity of ritual. So it's kind of um, incorporating interactive games, uh, art pieces, there's uh, supper clubs with conversations, discussions, and talks. And um, we're now joined by Tim Humphrey to discuss uh, his piece, um, along with his partner, Maddie Humphrey, um, sorry, Maddie Flynn, Madeline Flynn, Madeline that Flynn, couldn't, yeah. Yeah. couldn't come along today. Um, we Contain Multitudes, which is an audio visual work um, in the art house bathrooms, which is very interesting, um, that explores memory, forgetting and disease control and asks the question, who gets the vaccine? Now, um, Tim, who does get the vaccine? That's an interesting question and and it's because there's never usually enough vaccine, um, not everyone can get it. from our conversations with, um, say, the people at the Doherty, for example, um, they sort of identify people who should get it first and generally it's on the basis of they're more um, susceptible or, or in a position where they'll need that vaccine 
more than someone else. So, um, so there's two strategies. There's the so-called herd strategy where you try and vaccinate as many people as possible so that, um, there's a level of immunity in the, in the, um, community yeah, a bit closer. Um, and then there's when they're, when you're not able to do that. And generally when it's probably a more serious kind of infection where people will die, um, you need to get the people who are most likely to die to get them vaccinated. No, vaccinated. Yeah. So. Hmm. And how are you exploring uh, that through audio? Uh, um, I guess the way we approach things is not necessarily to meet something head on and say something. It's more to set up uh, a number of um, questions or a situation where you might question uh, the parameters of the problem or the situation. Um, so our piece is we've been working for uh, quite a while with um, conversational agents, which, which are those weird things that you ring up and it's not really a person on the phone who's um, trying to help you and is generally inaccurate. And so we're sort of, because that's sort of an emerging thing, um, we've been interested to play with the poetics of that, but also the comedy of that, the the limitations that are inherent in that, and also the enculturation that's um, embedded in the way that they're designed. Um, For example, why is it, why does it tend to be a female voice? You know, what, what does that mean? Um, is this an assistant who's female? You know, there's all, all those sort of things that are embedded in there. For, for, you know, it, it only reflects you know, general things in society, but um, that's what we were sort of exploring. And um, I suppose because we did a residency at the Doherty Institute and at the Melbourne General Cemetery, there's a lot of uh, culture, cultural... Um, tokens and, and um, principles at play across those two areas so that provides some interesting comparisons and some interesting things that will lead us to question, I mm. guess. Yeah. I can definitely imagine like a dystopian nightmare where you're trying to get in contact with, say, like the peak med- medical body and you're put on hold to one of these conversational <laughs> agents and <laughs> you're trying not to panic while your child is sick and you're trying to communicate. I can see that happening. Yeah, it, it's the whole... Um, um, because the Doherty Institute holds the Centre for Disease Controls as it as it is uh, in, say, in Victoria, you know. So there's some pretty hardcore, like it's a secure place. They've got these levels of security where um, no one can go in because they're afraid that something will get out, um, you know, for a whole lot of different things like that. And so it's r- right at the heart of the, um, what am I going to say, the state? I don't know. But it's it's very, it's a serious business for those in power um, but on the other side of that um, the, there's a lot of people working there who are very committed to um, if you like democratising the decision making procedures that sh- you know would roll out in um, in the event of something happening for example they're setting up a uh, thing called a citizen's jury which will look at the sort of um Part of the plan, you know, the prior plan, say there is a, an emerging pandemic that um, would decide who gets the vaccine, to, mm-hmm. to go back to the original question. So that citizen's jury would comprise uh, people, stakeholders, including the ones 
according to the plan or according to uh, different criteria, um, should get the vaccine first, for example. Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I just wanted to ask. So, in the in the context of your piece, how do yeah. we um, how do we interact with it physically? Like what? What's the what's the space like and the, the sound like before we get down there? Just so we know what to expect. Sure. Um, well, it's a conversational agent, but it's uh, in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. So as you wash your hands. Yeah. Um, Which is highly relevant. It sounds like. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Um, as you wash your hands, um, you will hear a voice and you can talk to it. Uh, it's just a microphone and a speaker. Yeah. And um, uh, it's not. It's not a, a, a lecture or a sermon or anything like that, but it, it's... Um, There's some verisimilitude in that it's not a lecture or a sermon, but actually um, like one of those, um, it's exactly a phone agent. A, a that's right. Agent. It's not yeah. on the phone, but it's no, on the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 sure. Because you, you can customise, uh, there's several sort of platforms that you can customise mm. those sort of agents okay. and divert them to your own... Um, purposes. Yeah, that's another thing. Someone's mm. voice has been sort of manipulated and commercialised in such a way that it's completely depersonalised from them, from them as well. That's well, it's an artificial voice. It's an artificial voice. Yeah, they, these days they, they can, you can construct them. You can actually take a... From zeros and ones? Well, yeah. Or a sample of someone's... Well, what I, and one of the ways mm. you can do it is you can either go directly from... Um, from scratch and build it up using what's known now about um, the way the voice sure. is made, or you can take a stamp model, a real voice. Hmm. You could even, we don't do it because it's not practical and or it costs too much. <laughs> um, it's to uh, take a acoustic stamp of yeah. a real voice and then make that into the voice, which is even freakier, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So th- we're interested in that. This, hmm. this is the coming coming age, I, g- I guess, hmm. you know, in some ways. Um, so that's it's a little bit scary. It's a little bit like a pandemic itself, you know. Tim, I just yeah, uh, yeah quickly just wanted to get this on in. Um, <laughs> sure. uh, um, so I see that you've been working a lot with the themes of existential risk, and yeah. I'm just curious as to how maybe this project or any other projects that you've been working on has like um, shaped your or altered your conception of survival or our survival. Uh, for me, yeah, um, it tends to that the philosophy of existential, which is sort of as it's been coined in, in philosophical circles, has kind of got this idea of the threat to the species. But for me, especially, um, um, and I think for my partner as well, um, there's a lot of people whose existence is continually threatened. And so it's it's not so much that oh, the aliens are coming and, and we're all going to get wiped out. It, it's more like... Uh, whose existence is under threat now, and who's uh, who's um, who should we grieve? What you know, a lot of people who die from disease around the world are not grieved. Of course, they're grieved by the people they know intimately. But if if one person dies in the U.S. who happens to be a U.S. politician, for example, um, you know, we're all meant to grieve that, but we don't grieve thousands and thousands of people who die from disease because. They don't have the resources to be able to meet, you know, not die from the mm. disease. Yeah. So that, for us, for me, that's um, that's really the current essence of existential risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something that's happening already. It's not something that we can placate to the future. 
Yeah, that's a, 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 a current and present yeah. pressing concern. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, I mean, I guess the part of the whole point of refuge is to, like, bring greater inclusivity into the debate. And um, how can we build on this? And what, what role does the arts play in informing us of these future risks or these risks that we currently live within? Um, well, as an artist, I constantly grapple with the relevance of the thing that we're doing and whether we're actually doing anything. And because ultimately it's about... a um, some kind of shift in power relations, and I'm not sure how much art actually does play in that. Um, I think um, there's an important, um, if you like, shaping of uh, theory, practice, and, and, and if you like, I don't know, ideology or um, ideas uh, around that art plays a part in, and also a kind of um, uh, engendering solidarity in a way or, or inclusivity in terms of okay now I can think about that or I hadn't thought about that or something like that so but the actual change in the power structures uh, requires um, a more expansive sort of idea rather than just making an artwork mm-hmm. yeah unfortunately <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah so many layers that no yeah, no yeah. absolutely I totally yeah. agree yeah. Um, so your your piece, you and uh, Madeline's piece, is presented by the Arts House, and it will be um, on Thursday, the thirtieth of August, Friday, the thirty first of August, and Saturday, the first of September, from one p.m. Uh, it's free. Uh, it's down at the North Melbourne Town Hall, and it's uh, part of um, the Refuge program. And I implore anybody to um, look on the website to see what other events are available because it's pretty fantastic. It's, a, it's Arts House Melbourne. Arts yeah. House Melbourne. Yes. Sorry, I do yeah. apologise. Yeah. Uh, now, you've been listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and we've had a big show today, so we've just spoken to Tim Humphrey um, and uh, about about Refuge, that um, installation that's um, opening tonight. That's right. Down at the Arts Centre. Arts House. Melbourne. Arts House. Beg your pardon. North Arts Melbourne House. Town Hall. North Melbourne Town Hall. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, earlier we spoke to Jenny Weber, who's campaign manager for the Bob Brown Foundation, about our new Minister for the Environment, or Minister Against the Environment. And uh, earlier in the show, we spoke to Bridget Knight-Banniff, who is the co-chair of Antar Victoria, who gave us a rundown of the election scorecard leading up to the, the state election. And then throughout the show, we've been hearing from Decolonizing Stories, which is an event happening last Sunday, um, which centres the voices of First Nations people from so-called Australia, Palestine and South Africa. And um, you'll be hearing more of those stories tomorrow on Thursday Breakfast and on Friday on Greenleft Week- Weekly Solidarity Breakfast. Um, and next up is Stick Together. You folks have a wonderful Wednesday. Enjoy the rest of your week. Bye. Bye. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.